Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 6th, 2017, and this is episode 1946 of the Survival Podcast. And it's a Monday, so this is a listener feedback show. And if you want to have content of you, you suggest or a question you have or anything you'd like featured on the show, on a show like this one today, it's really not that hard. I mean, there's a, a quantity issue, but if you, if you try a few times and you send some good stuff, you'll probably get on the air. All you do is just send your email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com and make sure you put the following in the subject line, the, the letters TSPC, as though they're a single word, and then whatever else you want in the subject line. That way, if it goes in the spam monster, I'll find it. I know it's show-related, so I'm going to look at it. I'm going to read it. And big thing, if you have a question, ask your question in one sentence. If you're sending me a link to an article, give me your point about the article in one sentence. Then give me your link. Hit return a couple times, give me all the details you want. You do that, you are so much more likely to get through my screening because, well, there's hundreds of emails a day, and I have to do it all myself. So I have to be able to do it quickly, and I've trained my mind to work that way. So if you help me help you, you'll be more likely to get on the air. <clears throat> What do we got coming on the air today? Well, I have a question about fermenting and aging meads. I'll take that one, even though the person suggested maybe Erica Strauss for it. This is really a, a jack question, definitely. Uh, we have the ins and outs of herb-infused oils, and I'm going to give you the safe, easy way to do it, where you can do it the same way all the time and not worry about it. Uh, PVC pipe for a raised garden. I have some thoughts on that, and the answer to the question is going to be something like, maybe, we will see. Uh, I have a question on the hypocrisy of the left, uh, shown in their current violence. Uh, all of these things we see on TV, people getting maced and stuff thrown at them, specifically violence against women. Um, I'll give you some thoughts on that. I've tried not to talk too much about that because it's all freaking political theater bullshit anyway, but it, it is something that's becoming increasingly concerning and something we need to be aware of, so I'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, I've talked a lot about the rise of artificial intelligence and automation. How about AI that's te teaching customer service reps how to talk to people better? <clears throat> yeah, I said that. The computer... You know, the, the old voices on computers that sounded so robotic, but now computers are actually instructing humans how to better communicate. That has a couple different aspects of it I want to talk about today. Barter is transforming rural Spain. And what can we learn from it? I have a story out of the coal region of Spain, which is no longer the coal region. The coal's there, but they're not mining anymore. And it, much like West Virginia, Central Pennsylvania, etc., uh, major recession for the people in those areas. A uh, question on moving out to the country and now needing or considering moving back to the city and a variety of thoughts on that. A TSP community member has a cool grafting workshop going on. I'll tell you about that in just a couple seconds to, to do that. And a story of a gun saving multiple lives and a lesson about how to carry following up from my advice last week. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do all that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, you know, prepping involves evaluating your primary survival needs of food, water, shelter, security, and energy, and then shoring them up. That's really the most simple way to understand it in a nutshell. In that effort, ready-made resources is the go-to place to get that done. Everything, and I do mean everything for your prepping needs. Ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. 
Hey guys, you know what? I love using herbs over conventional medicine for so many reasons, but there's so much hype in the herbal industry, it's hard to know who to trust. That's why I was so excited over seven years ago when I found Western Botanicals, an honest company with great products and wonderful people who really care about their customers. For all your herbal needs, do what I do and check out westernbotanicals.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. The year is 1946, and World War II's over, sort of. We'll get a little bit on that today. And I have three for you today. I have the Jewish attack on British headquarters, and no, I'm not misspeaking there, the Jewish attack on British headquarters. I have the bikini experiments and the control of nuclear power, and I have an iron curtain is dividing Europe. And I have some bullet points. We'll go through the bullet points, and I'm going to read the bikini experiments and the control of nuclear power. Notable births. Bill Clinton, living president of the United States after George W. Bush. George W. Bush. I'm going to stop saying living. We have too many people living now. I'll tell you if they're dead from now on. George W. Bush, president of the United States after Bill Clinton, son of H.W. Bush. Laura Bush, first lady and wife of George W. Bush. Donald Trump, president of the United States after Barack Obama. All these people were born this year, 1946. In entertainment, the directors were born this year. Oliver Stone, Steven Spielberg, and Evan Reitman. In music, Dolly Parton, Naomi Jed, Keith Moon, and more. Uh, Sylvester Stallone was born this year. Tim Curry from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And Susan Sarandon from Rocky Horror Picture Show. Thelma Louise and political activist who is like listening to nails on a chalkboard. Um, that's my comment there. This year in film, we have Song of the South, Disney's version of Uncle Remus' stories. The Best Years of Our Lives, Returning U.S. Servicemen, Readjusting to Normal Life. And It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed, a discouraged man wishes he was never born. Yep, it's a, if you've never seen It's a Wonderful Life, you, you kind of watch it. I don't know how many people are left at having, but this year in music, <clears throat> I Love You for Sentimental Reasons by Nat King Cole, The Christmas Song by Nat King Cole, and Let It Snow, Let It Snow, Let It Snow by Van Monroe, none of which were the number one songs of the year. You'll find out what that is at the end today. The ENAC computer is introduced. It can calculate trajectory 2,400 times faster than a human. Why would someone need a trajectory calculated? Hmm. Ho Chi Minh resumes his fight against French occupation. He asks for U.S. recognition of Vietnam's independence. The OSS, the early version of the CIA, had been supporting him against Japan, but now Ho Chi who? Yeah. And we should have just never stuck our nose there, but you'll see how that happens over the next 25 years. Anyway, World War II continues. For the purposes of military occupation of Germany and Japan, the war will technically continue for five more years. Many people don't know that. Also, after VE and VJ Day, there was still some stuff going on in the Pacific, and a lot of soldiers uh, from like the Dutch Marines actually were sent away to fight those, and men were still dying in that fight after we were done really thinking about it. I just threw that in there. The one I'm going to read is The Bikini Experiments and the Control of Nuclear Power. The military have been doing bomb damage assessment of atomic bomb blasts that hit Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The U.S. Navy is especially concerned with the kind of damage they might sustain and kind of damage they might inflict in a nuclear experiment at sea. So they assemble a fleet of decommissioned ships, including the submarine USS Skate, the aircraft carrier USS Saratoga, and the Japanese battleship Nagato, along with cargo ships and landing craft. The fleet is sent to the Bikini Atoll for a test. The ships are carefully placed along with ammunition loads, food, and military equipment to measure the effects of radiation. 
Cameras are rolling, and airplanes on remote control will be sent through the mushroom cloud. The narrator of the film I'm watching says that flying through a mushroom cloud is certain death. Yet I know that a Japanese flyer cut into the mushroom cloud over Nagasaki and lived, but don't try it at home. The Saratoga survives test ABLE with very little damage, but test Beta is an underwater detonation. Ships leap from the water and fall back to their destruction. Admirals and generals see it with their own eyes. My God, what have they done, and what are they going to do now? My take by Alex Shrugged. As they say, you can't put the genie back in the bottle, but they tried with something called the, buk, buk, the Baruch plan. In Hebrew, it means blessed, and the word is often used as a name. Bernard Baruch is an economic advisor to Woodrow Wilson and FDR. He was famous for meeting with government officials while sitting on a bench in Lafayette Park. His plan called for turning over all nuclear arms to a central clearinghouse called the United Nations, which met the first time the previous year. It also called, with reg called for regular inspections to check for violations. The Soviet Union objected because it perceived the UN as a tool for the United Nations. The Soviets had their own secret Manhattan Project going, as did the British. This first nuclear disarmament plan failed, but there were many more thereafter. One interesting thing came out of the bikini experiment, the French bathing suit of the same name. It exploded onto the scenes and made quite a splash. Pick your puns. Um, I'll tell you, there's other stuff in here about like the Twilight Zone and how people were freaked out about the nuclear threat. And if you really want to understand the mentality of people that were alive in the, you know, we move into the 50s here in the next few years, and it became evident that not only would the U.S. have the bomb, but other nations would as well, specifically the Soviet Union. You watch Twilight Zone and you see so obvious how much, it, how dominating it was. Those of us like myself who were alive in the 70s and 80s remember the, the fear and the threat and, and TV series like The Day After, but there was also kind of this, Well, it's probably not going to happen feeling because it had been a threat for so long and had yet to happen. And it seemed like these Russian guys were you know, bad guys, but they had some brains and nobody in the mutually assured destruction was pretty well ramped up at that point. Uh, but in the, in the late 40s, early 50s through the 60s, the, the concept that the whole world could turn into a giant pile of mushroom clouds became very real for people. And there was a potential for it. And, you know, sometimes I pick on the United States because we're not the angels we make ourselves out to be. But the truth is, if this nation had designs on completely taking over the world, if we had moved swiftly after World War II, there was almost nothing that could have been done to prevent it. Because we had, you know, it took so much to build, you know, a couple bombs here and a couple, a couple to test and a couple to drop on some people. But uh, once we had gotten to that point, we were able to make these things pretty quickly. And we got better at making them and better and better and better. We had a major technological advantage. I, I'm watching this series that was recommended to me last week. I watched the first episode of it um, called The Man in the High Castle. And the concept there is that the Germans got the nuclear bomb first. So they end up turning the tide, winning the war, and taking over half of the United States, the other half going to the Japanese with this neutral zone thing in the middle. You know what? If Germany had gotten the atomic bomb before the United States, it's very possible that that would have happened. It's very possible. Absolutely very possible. And there's times where you look at what some of the things we've done as a nation, the United States, and say, man, that seems wrong. But you also have to look at the totality of history when judging anything and the context of the time. That doesn't mean that you say, like, that was okay, But I think the study of history really should be understanding 
the actions of people under the context of the times, including actions that with hindsight we say we wouldn't take. Well, people don't have the luxury of hindsight in the present. Just another reason to study history and learn from it. All right, folks, I want to remind you about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. That's a great way that you can support the show and get a return of investment. We offer discounts to over 60 vendors. There's a lot of video content that you can't get anywhere else. We do video all of our workshops from this point going forward. There's hours of video on our workshops in there for MSB members only, and yes, you can download them. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files, so you can start with episode one and binge out all the way up to episode 2000 and beyond very, very soon. That's all available, and it's all available for a cost that comes down to 18.3 episodes per day, $50 a year. And you can try the membership out for as little as $5 a month. If you have not yet become a member, please consider supporting the show as a Support Brigade member today. With that, let's go ahead and get into the uh, main stuff for today's show. So as I get into your first email, before I do that, I want to let you guys know about some of the things that have uh, happened here over the last few days at uh, Nine Mile Farm, a.k.a. TSP Ranch, my little farmstead. So I've been, I've been yammering on about uh, setting up a, a fish aquarium set up in my office so that I can do things like, one, just have some cool fish to look at while I'm working because that will improve my mood and make me do a better job for you, but also so I can do some breeding with maybe tilapia or things like that for my aquaponic systems and, and what have you. And uh, the first tank, I ordered 255s, is here. It's set up. It's cycling with goldfish. I put kind of a cool video online of Charlie the dog um, kind of obsessing over the fish because uh, he likes fish. We take him fishing. He goes ape whenever fish comes out. So he knows what they are. And uh, he, he threw that on Facebook. Like, that's the kind of reason to follow me on Facebook, just because I put stuff like that up that generally is not show-worthy. But the, the tanks that up. And then yesterday, my buddy David came over, and we've had problems with the return uh, uh, lines on my uh, my aquatic setup, which is made up of five uh, uh, galvanized stock tanks. And uh, we, we plumbed in two-inch pipe for the return lines cut in. David did the bulkheads because he's like plumber extraordinaire. And uh, that way I didn't have to worry about screwing anything up. So he, he plumbed in the bulkheads, and we dug some ditches, and we got everything put together. And we now have that system cycling. I have a couple little mods left to make on it before I, uh, I show it, but we really have improved that system a great deal. We're going to be able to run a lot higher flow through it. Many of you are familiar with the garden ponds that I'm talking about. Uh, it, it's going to take on an entire new level uh, going into this year. And uh, i got a facade I have to build in front of it and things like that. So we have a lot of cool content. And then the other thing is tomorrow the ducks ship out. Well, they actually ship in or they start shipping on their way here. These are the new ducks, not the existing ducks. Um, 130 ducks. Uh, are on their way tomorrow from Metzer Farms to the Spirico Farm and Homestead Nine Mile Farm to begin Duck Chronicles Season 3. So that is, uh, that's all coming. Lots of video content coming with, with all of that. Uh, and, 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 uh, so just kind of be aware of that. If you're not on the YouTube channel, please subscribe to me on YouTube. Just go to the site and you can see a link there to get over to YouTube or go to the, the go to YouTube and search for Survival Podcasting. That's my username there. And subscribe to us. And if you want to make sure you get updated on all my uh, new video content, when you subscribe to a person on YouTube, you can actually get an email every time they post new videos. 
but only if you ask YouTube to do that for you. So when, you, when you're on YouTube, you'll see a thing that's subscribe. You click subscribe. Now, once it changes from subscribe to subscribed, um, right next to it, there'll be a little thing that looks like a bell. If you click on that, a little window pops open. You can check a box in there and say, send me emails every time this channel uploads a new video. So that's something good to know, not just for my stuff, but if you have other content providers that you like on YouTube and you're like, I want to make sure I see all their new videos, make sure you turn those notifications on. And that has to be done as far as I know individually. So uh, just because you subscribe to somebody doesn't mean that you're going to get updates from them, only if you su select that you want to do that. All right, so getting into uh, your first email to me of the day. This one is on one of my favorite subjects, mead. So says, a few questions about mead making and fermenting beverages. How long do you let mead, mead age? If I find a recipe I like, does it directly scale up to five gallons or, or not? Uh, and do you add your fruits in the primary or secondary? Any ideas on fermenting coffee or doing coffee mead? Um, I have heard that mead should age between six to 12 months or longer. I'm wondering what you think on this. I just bottled a one-gallon one batch of vanilla oak mead. I really like the turnout. I want to scale it up to five gallons. Are there quantities just X times five, or do I bump it up harder? I have done all of my additives thus far in the secondary. I'm wondering which you have found to be the best practice. Lastly, I really love coffee and would like to try uh, a ferment of strong brew coffee, high volume of sugar, and let it go, or a mead. Okay, so let's start. There's a lot there. It's almost a little mini mead show, but I'm going to go fast and, and do it. Okay, so how long do you let your meads age? Well, the answer is as long as you want. And they do change and develop character as they age. But when you bottle a mead, it should be ready to drink. And, and generally, not a, not, not a hard number, generally when I make a mead, it is ready to be bottled within 30 to 60 days. And if I do certain things that I'm not going to get into today, I can push that faster. Okay, But it's a young mead. And it doesn't mean it's bad. A lot of times there's a brightness in young meads that while complexities develop as it ages... The, uh, the 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 brightness subdues, so it, it it's not really one's better than the other. It's that they're different, and and what I really advise you to do is you're making your batches of mead is to put aside a bottle to drink relatively young. Let it sit in a bottle for a couple of weeks just to get just to get settled in, right? And then make notes about it, and then taste that same mead four months later and compare it. If it sticks around long enough, you know, try it out a year. And compare your notes and determine with this particular mead, does it really improve with age? Do I is it worth the wait? Do I want to scale this up so I can drink some young and have some mid grade and some old? You know, but how it can pretty much make age as long as you want it. Um, do recipes scale up to five gallons proportionally? In general, yes. They absolutely do. If something calls for two pounds of fruit for a gallon and you want to do uh, five gallons, you put ten pounds of fruit in. Uh, with some exceptions, like your, your, your yeast, you really don't, like if it says to use a packet or two packets of yeast, it's enough for five gallons as much as it is for two. Um, yeast nutrient, you could probably overdo that, scaling it directly up, because a lot of guys do a small batch, they use more than they really need, because that helps get that faster fermentation. So recipe straight scale. Right? If a gallon, you want to do two gallons, double it. You want to do five gallons, multiply by five. You want to do ten gallons, multiply by ten. That's all there is to it, okay? However, Five gallons, ten gallons of mead will generally not ferment out and finish as quickly as a gallon. And it's it, there's just something about these one-gallon small batches. They really just 
they pound through their fermentation very, very quickly compared to larger batches. So about your only real variables, it'll probably take longer to finish fermenting and settle out. Um, as far as fruits in your primary or secondary, this is, you ask 10 mead makers, you get 10 different opinions and, and, and two different main answers, but you'll have different opinions as to why. My personal preference, I ferment my fruit in the primary. I will often add things like vanilla in the secondary, but my fruits, anything that's a fermentable, I want it in the primary when fermentation is at its highest. The reason a lot of people think the other way around is because there's so many commercial mead makers. They can't be mucking around with, I'm going to make a batch of strawberry, I'm going to make a batch of blackberry, I'm going to make a classic honey only, I'm going to make a peach, and doing that all differently. What most of your commercial makers do for the sake of, of, of scalability is they just make mead, plain old ordinary everyday mead. Honey and water and yeast and nutrient to get it done quick enough to be commercially viable. They might make a low gravity and a high gravity, a dry and a sweet, but they make mead, huge holding tanks of mead. And then they just ferment out some basic strawberry wine. They do a blend. They're happy with the blend. They have a known final product, and they blend and they draw from their mead. Some homemakers take that approach. They make 10, 15, 20 gallons of straight mead, and then they do blends. So there's that. Then there's people that do the secondary because they think it adds its nuances and whatever. Here's how I look at it. Here's a typical recipe I might do. Three pounds of honey, four cups of fresh blackberries. When the blackberries are on, I make that all the time uh, to a gallon. Okay, those blackberries are high in nutrients, They, they give all kinds of wonderful nutrients that help feed the yeast that's fermenting the honey. So I'm going to get a much quicker uh, fermentation. The faster it goes, as long as we're not doing something stupid like heating it to 95 degrees, so we get all kinds of off care. But the faster it goes at the same relative temperature and conditions, the less chance there is for other shit to get in there and mess it up. So we ferment it out. When it seems like it's chilled out, calm down. The blackberries look like they're just bleh. You know, we, we rack off to our secondary, and then I do something that most people call heretical, and that is when I rack to my secondary, I formulated my three pounds to the gallon to basically come out to like doing two pounds to the gallon with loss. So when I go to my secondary, I take clean water and I top up to a full gallon. Now, if, if it, if it's a, something that has to settle out and it has to be racked to a third, Uh, container and go through a tertiary racking, I do not do that little trick again. I'm done at that point. I get really great meads and I get a full gallon per my one gallon batch by doing that. That's how I do things. You can do anything you want. Any ideas on fermenting coffee or doing coffee mead? Okay, fermenting coffee, I don't have any idea. I don't think you should because uh, you're not fermenting coffee. You're fermenting sugar. Okay, so if you made a really sweet coffee and fermented it, all you're doing is fermenting coffee flavored sugar. Because coffee's not fermentable. Now, coffee mead is a wonderful thing. And the way I did coffee mead, I did a coffee vanilla mead, and everybody drank it went, wow. I took two cups of coffee, whole bean coffee. I put it in a little coffee grinder that I recommend, a little uh, Mr. Coffee one that I use mostly for spices, small amounts at a time until I got it all done. I just cracked it. You could probably do this in a blender or a Nutrinent. Not ground, pulse, pulse, pulse until all the beans are cracked open. I put them all in the bottom of the fermenter. I got my electric kettle, 
and I heated up a full electric kettle full of water almost to boiling, took it off, and I just covered the beans with water. And I let that soak for a little bit, and then I added my honey and my yeast nutrient and more hot water to get all the honey to dissolve. Once the honey was dissolved, I topped it off with clean water. I ran the primary fermentation with just the coffee. I racked to a secondary. I put in three uh, split vanilla, actually, no, let me think about this, one and a half vanilla beans, three pieces, so split lengthwise, three, so one and a half beans uh, into the secondary. I let that finish out and clear, and then I bottled it. It was fantastic. I didn't really brew coffee. I just did an infusion of the cracked coffee. You could do it with a cold brew method, but here's the thing. By using that hot water, that those coffee beans, whatever kind of wild, funky nutrient or whatever, uh, yeast or bacteria or whatever, it was pasteurized, see? And, and that came out. I could have done with a wildflower honey. That was fantastic. And I, I really think that that would be a good starting point for you. Um, as far as when people say, well, you have to age you for six to 12 months. Shut up and age your meat as long as you want. You know, I'll drink mine when I feel like it, which might be the day after I put in the bottle. Honestly, most of the time when I bottle, I've got to get these, these, uh, carboys, they call them from, uh, from Uline, U-L-I-N-E, Uline. They're two and a half gallons. They're a few bucks a piece. They have a spigot on the bottom and I rack into those and I put my bottle right to the spigot and I, I bottle and I get about, I guess six bottles, seven bottles, six, 16 ounce swing out bottles per gallon uh, out of them. It makes, it makes it so fast and so easy to do. And a lot of times because you do lose some with racking, even when you do the top up or you know, you, you've taken a, a sample to taste or whatever, you end up with a, a certain amount that doesn't really fill a full bottle. And I usually take like a little half pint jar or something like that And I put it in there and I throw it in the refrigerator. And then that night, as a reward for being a good boy and bottling my mead, I get a little sample of mead. And I never go, gee, that sucks. I often think, that's going to be really good with a couple, three months, four months of age on it. right? But I never like, oh, I'm not going to drink that. That's awful. Mead originally was drunk long before it was what we would call finished. Uh, it was still fizzing. It was still chugging along. They threw all kinds of fruits and berries and stuff in it, and they drank it with big giant spoons and Viking horns because it was about the experience of drinking mead, not trying to make something that we aged for three or four years. I will say I've had some two- and three-year-old meads that were really good and aged did great things for them, and I've had some that were two- and three-years-old. They were fine to drink, but they would have been better young. It, it, it all depends on what you're making. Hopefully that answers your questions. Let's go on and take another one. Um, while we're on kind of the crafting thing, right? Um, question, would you be able to provide a refresher on how to make infused oils? Details, we purchased our first bottle of high-quality balsamic vinegar, but I'm not willing to pay high prices for garlic or rosemary-flavored olive oils. Uh, could, you include, could you include recipes for your favorite infused oils? Thanks, from Appleton, Wisconsin. Um, my favorite infused oil is chili, chili garlic pepper oil. Uh, what I use, which I make with Thai chilies. And if you go to the website and, and, and search our search function for Thai chili oil, you'll find, uh, the chilies I use and the recipe and how I, I do it on there. Um, I, I don't make a lot of infused oils from the standpoint of I'm going to make a bottle of infused oil and then I'm going to have it sitting around and then I'm going to use it in the future. I usually just make as much as I need when I need it because the easy way to make infused oils is you put as much oil as you need into whatever you're going to cook. 
You put your dried herbs or fresh herbs, if you're doing it that way, into it, and you heat it, and it takes the flavor, and then we use it right away. Uh, and it's such a fast process. I don't do a lot of making up jars and bottles and stuff like that, though I do at times. And the chili garlic is one that I really use. So the, the real question isn't what do I like, but what do you like? What are your favorite things? And, like, garlic is one of the greatest ones. Okay, so... Here, what I want to do is I want to give you the way that you could make your infused oils and not worry about killing yourself with botulism. And I want to give it to you where it'll work for everything you do, and you won't ever have to worry. And I want you to understand another thing. When you ask me for a recipe, unless it's bread or something like that, where it's a baking thing, where the formulation is specific, or it's sausage, where the formulation is specific, I'm like, I don't need no stinking recipe, and you don't either. I just kind of look and eyeball and throw stuff in. So... If we wanted to make a, instead of the chili garlic oil, since that recipe is on the site, let's say we wanted to make a garlic basil infused olive oil, and we, and we wanted to be able to keep it around for a while and not worry about botulism showing up. Okay, the first thing we need to know is what temperature can we kill botulism at? And the temperature we can kill botulism at is 250 degrees. We, we kill the actual botulism organism stone dead. Now, if we boil something for even a few minutes, but the recommended number is 10 minutes, if it's loaded with botulism and we boil it for 10 minutes, it's not that we kill the botulism. The botulism isn't the problem. The toxin that's the byproduct of the botulism reproducing is the problem. You boil all of that off and it won't hurt you. But we don't want to boil our oil once it's been infused. We might want to use it straight on... Uh, a salad or something like that, right? We might want to dip bread in it or something like that, right? So we want to make sure that we kill the botulism. So what's the easy answer? Heat the oil to over 250 degrees. Now, the other side of that is, that's about the temperature where you might start to see a little tiny bit of cooking action, but we don't really cook the shit out of the yards. We don't start a frying thing going on, Okay. So the way I do this, I put about, you know, let's say we're going to make a cup of oil. Put about a cup of oil into a pot, and we stir in our herbs. In this case, dried basil and dried garlic. Why dried? Well, if we're going to store it, we still want to make sure that we absolutely can't kill ourselves with botulism. So the other thing that botulism needs, other than an anaerobic or absent of oxygen environment, which is what the inside of oil is, is water. Now, water and oil don't exactly play well together anyway and tend to separate out, but we can get just enough moisture in there with something like fresh chopped garlic or fresh chopped basil to leave little pockets where maybe anaerobic environment and botulism can play nice together and make deadly toxin that can kill us. But if we used a dehydrated basil and a dehydrated garlic for our infusion, we are going to get a waterless environment. And especially when we heat that oil at 250 degrees, any water that is in there is going to go up in the air and vanish like a fart in the wind as vapor anyway, steam. So we're going to take our dried herbs, we're going to put them into our oil, we're going to take a thermometer, we're going to put that on a stovetop very, very slowly, we're going to heat that oil up to 200 and to just be safe and make the safety police not bother us, 255 degrees. We're going to take that at that immediate time and we are going to shut the heat off. We're going to put a lid on the oil on the pan. We're going to take a big towel. We're going to set the pan in the lid in, in the uh, on the towel and fold the towel around to hold the heat in. And we're going to let it sit there. 
It's going to sit there until it cools down. After it cools down, we're going to strain it into a clean, sanitized, and dry container. And then, just to be super safe, we're going to store it in the refrigerator. And we can do that with any herbs that we want at all, period, the end, infinity. And instead of waiting weeks and having some safety concerns, we can infuse oil with all kinds of wonderful herby goodness in a couple hours. And that's all we really need to do. And I'll tell you the other thing. If you think fresh gives more flavor than tried, I want you to try an experiment for me. I want you to get either some dehydrated carrots or celery or anything, or onions or anything like that. And I want you to measure a cup of water in two pans. Okay? And I want you to take and put two tablespoons of fresh, in fact, we're going to just to be fair, double the amount of fresh. Four tablespoons of fresh celery, let's say, into water. And we're going to put two tablespoons of dried celery into water. I want you to heat both of those pans to boiling, kill the temperature, throw a lid on them, and just wait until it cools down to where you can taste it. And taste the liquid, the water. And the amount of flavor from the dehydrated product will blow you away. And it's not just that, that you know, an ounce counts for you know half a pound or whatever. It's the chemistry involved. We dehydrate something like a carrot or a celery or, or an herb. We concentrate the flavor in the absence of water. The water goes away and flavor and fiber is all that remains. When we rehydrate that, as the water goes in, the cell walls have been ruptured in that item. That's why if we dehydrate a pepper, it'll rehydrate, it'll taste good, but it will never have the structure of a pepper going to be soft. It won't be crunchy, can't go back. Well, because of that, as the water goes in, it will actually overhydrate. Well, that means something else, which is flavor compounds have to come out. So we actually can get more flavor in an herbal infusion, herbal oil infusion, with a dried herb than we can with a fresh. So there's no reason to risk botulism. So hopefully that helps and makes sense. Uh, next one, this is on gardening. Bill says, is it... Is it worth, I think is what he means, it says work, but I think it's a typo. Is it worth trying to use a PVC pipe as a planter for a vegetable garden? My wife's grandmother would like to have a garden this year, but can't handle the stooping and bending over to weed a traditional garden. I have a couple of 20-foot sticks of 12-inch PVC. Uh, I thought about cutting one of them in half in a 10-foot stick and then split them half long ways to give me a couple long troughs. I could then use 4x4s and 2x2s to raise the troughs high enough to make them easier for her to reach. Would this provide enough soil for tomatoes, eggplants, jalapenos, bell peppers, squash? If so, would I need to adjust the recommended spacing for plants due to limited soil available? Thanks in advance. Love the show, Bill. It might work. It might work. But... It's a relatively small soil footprint, and you're going to have a high evaporation rate. If I, would, if I was going to do this, and I'll give you some other concerns in a second, what I would prefer that you do, cut your pipe into 10-foot sticks, right? Cap the ends, and then take a hole saw and drill something like 3-inch, 2.5-inch, whatever size works for you best, holes, like the one, pipes you've seen done for hydroponics this way. Fill your pipe with soil and plant an individual plant into each hole, maybe a foot, 18 inches apart per, for holes on center. 18 inches would probably be a pretty good thing. 
Um, this this is going to reduce evaporation, okay? Because what's going to happen if you take a trough like that, especially if it's in heavy sun, which we'll talk about in a second. I don't care if you just soak it till it, it's just you know drenched and it's swimming in water. In the summer, that's going to dry out really, really fast. Where if we do these little holes, especially if we put a little mulch around each hole, we're going to really hold water better, put some drain holes in the bottom of this pipe too, so that when we, when we soak it down, it can, it can you know, drain out and not be overly saturated. If you could set that up with something like Home Depot, Lowe's, etc. sells drip irrigation line. And that drip irrigation line has emitters already installed, and I think they're every foot. So then you would go with a 12-inch spacing, or we would plug every other hole and go with a 2-foot spacing. A 12-inch spacing done this way would probably work for most of the plants you described. But what you might want to do is, is two non-space hogs with one space hog, so to say. So maybe a couple lettuces on each side of a pepper, because peppers get pretty big. Squash, I think you're at, you might be able to do some vining squash, like a butternut, and let that come off of one end and vine somewhere. But I think you're asking for an awful lot because there's a lot of root mass. I wouldn't try zucchini in something like this. But hell, what do I know? Give it a shot. Maybe it'll work. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, really high quality soil mix and good fertility. And if you can take your drippers and set up an inline fertigation regime where we can just take something like garret juice and dump it into something that that drip's going through and taking some with it, um, you might do really, really well. Here's my concerns. Just like Nick Ferguson was talking about on Friday when somebody asked about cultivating potatoes in towers. If you make a narrow tower and you put potatoes in it and it gets hit by the sun, it's going to be really, really hot and roots want to be nice and cool. Even plants that love heat, they like cool root zones. You go anywhere where the soil is loose and friable and deep, and it could be 100 degrees out. If you dig down 8 inches, you know it's 20, 30 degrees cooler in that soil, especially if it's moist and it's friable. So with a pipe, with a trough, with anything, if you're sitting out where the sun beats on it, you have basically a baker. So my concern is if you follow my advice and drill the holes, it might in some ways be worse than your idea of cutting it in half. Okay? Because if you cut it in half, yeah, it can dry out faster, but if we put a drip on a timer, we can mitigate that. Where if it's enclosed, we'll reduce evaporation, but if the sun's beating down on that pipe, we're more likely to heat that pipe up. Either way, we might think about some way that we can set your troughs up and maybe use some shade cloth around, held off, not laying on top of it, because then you're just black on top of pipe, right? To, to shade the root zone out in some manner might help. Another option, though, that might be really, really simple, if you can get enough material to make it work, is Nick Ferguson's plan for growing potatoes. So what I think I remember him saying is he builds them four foot by four foot out of hog panels, and you just fill them up. Well, they make these hog panels that are four foot tall, and they're eight foot long. And you can take a, 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 a sawzall and cut two of them into you know two each, so you got four, and wire them together and basically fill them up with organic matter. And you could treat that like one big garden bed, a four-by-four four garden bed. And where's that going to be? That's going to be about four foot high. If you want it at three foot high, you can lob the bottom off and do that. Then you've got a lot more soil mass, 
and we can kind of lasagna guard that. So that might be another option to consider. It, a lot of this depends on your climate. You know, what bakes a plant to death in Texas, the plant loves in Pennsylvania. Especially if, you know, like, so another thing, if you can do your pipes, okay, then I would say this is what you want. You want a place where you get good sun, eastern sun in the morning, and maybe sun all the way till about noon, and then you're going to go very much a shaded environment in the afternoon on those hottest part of the days. The further you are north, the more mild your climate, the longer the duration of sun you want, and the further you are south, the shorter the duration of sun, the more you want to stick to eastern only. The only real way is going to be to give this thing a shot. I would also tell you that maybe a way to do this is look at Larry Hall's gutter grow gardening system. would be another way to keep things from drying out and maybe do some modifications to some of the things he's done. Um, I, I will uh, put a, a link to – I'm not saying to do what he's doing in this video uh, because you have a different situation. You're trying to use a different material. But something like that pipe – Uh, laid in maybe a, a, a gutter, a rain gutter, with a float valve and net pots going through it to keep that whole thing like one wicking bed with it cut in half like you originally wanted to, that might work really well. Um, but even if you just did what he does, which he does a lot of things, but you know, a rain gutter with five-gallon buckets and then plants grow in each bucket. Well, if you build your gutter stand a foot tall, And then you're sitting five-gallon buckets into it, and that bucket comes up another two feet. Then that plant's at three feet at the root base. And, and that might be an easier solution. And I know you just have the pipe, but that pipe might have other uses in the future, like hydroponics uh, or aquaponics. I'm, I'm just saying. That's pretty expensive material where the five-gallon bucket method might be better for you, Bill. So take a look at that before you make your final decision. Okay, so next one is our, I guess, our, our, our politics for the week, because I try to stay off this as much as possible. It says, uh, this is from Nikki. Nikki says, uh, Hi, Jack, what do you think of all these left-wing, anti-fascist, anti-Trump protesters, rioters, assaulting, assaulting women? First, I want to say, they say they're anti-fascist. They are fa They are the definition of fascism. The, these people that think Trump is a fascist that are out smashing shit, breaking shit, yelling in the streets, screaming, not my president, like little children, um, oppressing people for speaking their mind because they don't like what they're saying, wanting the state to fix their solutions but hating the guy that's running the state now, so now they're upset. They're, they're the very definition of fascists. Uh, class warfare, I mean, all of it. They just, pfft. okay. So uh, details. I saw a video of a woman Trump supporter at, a, at the Berkeley riots getting maced by a hooded protester for speaking and a woman getting smacked by a wooden flagpoles as they ran by. They looked like men with face masks based on how they were built. I saw a video of Lauren Southern getting piss-dumped on her head by a hooded protester. If that was my wife and you did that in front of me, I would have broke the teeth out of the son of a bitch that did it. And I'm going to tell you that's where this is going if this shit keeps up. Uh, let me continue, though. There is a video of alt-right women, Trump supporters, getting pelted with batteries. Let's stop there a second with this alt-right bullshit. Not everybody that likes Trump is freaking alt-right, and not even the people that call themselves alt-right can agree what alt-right means and is. And alt-right is not racist fascism. It's just stupid. It's absolutely moronic. Stop it. Uh, when did it become okay for men to assault women speaking? Doesn't that go against what all women were just protesting about? When did grown men start act assaulting trash cans? 
Uh, I hate tr I hate Trump. Let's beat up a trash can. Am I missing something? Do right-wing guys not stand up for women anymore and punch these creeps in their faces? I guess it's more of a reason to stay the hell out of these cities and carry my gun. I'm looking forward to your answer. Thanks for the show, Nikki. Okay, well, let's take a look at this. First of all, all this is is the hypocrisy of the left. All of their bullshit about social justice and acceptance and tolerance has always been nothing but absolute 100% bullshit. It's always been bullshit. It's always been bullshit. It's always been bullshit. That does not mean that there are not people out there that would call themselves liberals or call themselves left-leaning that don't actually want tolerance and peace and stuff like that. But all of the activists, all of the people in government, all of the vocal majority of the left are full of shit. They are totally okay with violence as long as it's for their means. They're, they, they say they're anti-gun, but they're totally for guns as long as the guns are held by men that do violence on their behalf instead of men to defend themselves. Okay? The left is full of shit. It's full of shit. It's full of shit. The right has its problems, but it means what it says. The left are a bunch of lying pricks. And I know some of you are mad at me because you see yourselves as leftists right now, but you know what? Either you're full of shit yourself, or you're not leftist like I'm talking about, so use your common sense and realize I ain't talking about you. But the leftist media, the leftist demonstrators, the picketers, the rioters, the protesters that are peacefully protesting. You're not peacefully protesting when you smash the windows out of a Starbucks. Oh, but Jack, that was just my bullshit. This is a mob mentality. This is fascism. This is the threat of violence. That's who these people are. Do white, uh, do conservative men, do white men, do whatever men, the right wing guys, do they not stand up for their women anymore? Sure we do. Sure we do. But you know what we're not doing? Most of us are not out at these things picketing and, and what have you because we know there's no point. We know the people in charge go, they don't give a shit if you march in the streets or yell or chant, not my president, like a child. They don't give a shit. As long as when you're done, you go home and either go back to work or spend your welfare, they don't give a shit what you do. They don't care. So there's not that many of us out there doing this stuff. But here's the other side of it. What people don't understand is there's a point at which even a mob full of pussies is still a mob. And if you're outnumbered enough and somebody does something to throw something at somebody or something like that, and if you respond with violence, you're outnumbered and you can end up dead. Or, if you're armed, you can end up having to use lethal force, and the fact that you were armed and knew you could use lethal force is going to beg the question, if you're prosecuted, with, given that you were armed, why did you escalate the situation? See, that's another thing that people don't understand about being armed and responsibility of an armed citizen. The minute I am armed, I'm at a higher level of obligation to de-escalate rather than escalate the situation. Okay, But I'm going to tell you what's going to happen sooner or later if this shit keeps up. They're going to get what they want, which is violence. The left will get violence in, in response. And I need them to, I, if you are a part of that group, I need you to understand something about it. We don't do it as often as you. We are, and I'm saying we, and it's really not we. But it is we, because it's not just the right. These people are, are assaulting the right. They're assaulting libertarians. They're assaulting true voluntarists and anarchists. They're assaulting the middle left. They're assaulting everybody that doesn't fall in line with what they do. And as a group, as a total group there, we, 
don't go out and do this shit. We are tend to be not the types of people to go out and be violent, but if it comes to violence, get this through your thick skulls. We're way better at it than you are. We are way better when necessary at the use of force than you are because you use force for theatrics and you're accustomed to having people back up your force through the state. The people of this country that are conservatives, that are libertarians, that are voluntarists, as much difference as we have between us as three groups, when it comes to being able to defend ourselves, we're better at it than you. And I think that's dangerous because I think it's what they want. I think they want some of these people, they want a civil war. There's a problem with things, though, and that is if you be careful what you wish for, you might get it. And, and I'm telling you, the, the entire right side of the spectrum, the entire libertarian side of the spectrum, the entire true anarchist side of the spectrum, the philosophy there is very uniform on this issue of force. I don't want to use force on you, but if you make me, I will. And sooner or later, one of these types of protests or something like that, you're going to get 50 or 60 redneck bubbas that are sick of it. And I just hope it doesn't go to, 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 to firearms. Because then, then they're wrong. Then they're wrong. But one of these times, or you're just going to get a whole bunch of bikers or something like that, and they're just going to surround people and say, now go ahead. And every act of violence will be met with two counters of violence. I don't think it's a good idea, but it's what's going to happen. And if it does, the people on the left side of the equation, they're not going to like the results. They're not going to like the results. What's that, that nincom poop's name? That's Sarah Silverman, right? She wants a military coup to take the country back over. First of all, Nimrod, what makes you think the military would, would be for a coup to get rid of Trump and install somebody like Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders? Do you not know who the military is? Second of all, from what I just said, if there ever is a war in this country, people are against each other, you don't want to be on the left of it. You don't. You do not want to be on the left side of it. Because the people on the right and the people on the libertarian and the people on the anarcho side, all of us are way better at it than you. Way better at it than you. You guys might be good at throwing a rock. You might, guys might be good at running past some, some woman and spraying her in the face with mace. You might be better at running up behind somebody and hitting them with a stick. But if it comes down to it and you push it to where ground is stood, you're going to get hurt. And I, I have to say this in defense of people preemptively that may someday do it. How far do you let people aggress upon you before you respond with aggression? How far? How far? And this is a message to law enforcement. You guys, you need to crack down on this shit. Because so far, the people being attacked... The people being spit on, the people having pissed up on them, have been damn near pacifistic in their response. But if you have two brain cells that function together as a pair, you know everything I've said today is true. If it comes to violence, they're better at it. They're really, really, really good at it. And any man, any woman, any group of people has a limit to which you can push them to sooner or later, they're going to snap. And if you're feeling that way, I want to I give you advice. Don't go to those places. Don't be baited into it. 
Because you know the deck is tilted against you. And the media will make the most noble person defending themselves, if they're on the right, look like the aggressor. These people need to be seen by the middle for what they really are. And the best way to combat them now is to make sure that it's visible and known what they're doing. That it's not isolated incidents. But if you've ever wondered how hypocritical the left is, boy, they're giving you an answer to that question with everything we see in these protests and riots right now. A bunch of spoiled-ass children that have no idea how dangerous it is to poke the lion that they're poking. Because sooner or later, that lion might roar in a big way. I'm just saying. And now for something completely different. Uh, this comes from LightJ. LightJ says, Software now tr now trained to analyze voice tones, social cures, cues, to coach call center employees for better communications. Computer coaching a human how to better communicate with another human. Wow. And this is on Technology Review. I have a link in the show notes. The title of the article is Socially Sensitive AI Software Coaches Call Center Workers. Um, customer service reps are getting real-time coaching from software that has learned to detect problems in a conversation. Next time you call a customer support, the person on the other end of the line may be getting a little help from emotionally intelligent AI software. Some call center workers are now receiving real-time coaching from software that analyzes their speech and the nature of their dialogue interactions with customers. As they're talking to some of the software, might recommend they talk more slowly or interrupt less often or warn that the person on the other end of the line is upset. Gee, you know what? If you're talking to me, you're not going to have to wonder if I'm upset. I'm just saying. Uh, this gives us a fascinating glimpse at how AI and humans might increasingly work together in the future. Plenty of routine work is being automated in call centers, but other back office settings uh, by real human interaction seems to resist automation for a long while. Yet, even so, AI software may change the way people interact with customers by serving in an advisory capacity. Um, I, I actually think that it's very possible that in a very short period of time, that when you call for support, instead of being forced through these menus and automation and stuff like that, you will be talking to a computer and think it's a person in a real-time conversation. And these call center jobs, this, this working together, this is figuring it out. See, the people, the, 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 the people that are in these call centers, oh, this is great, it's telling me this person's mad at me. Gee, maybe if you had an IQ higher than 37, you could have figured that out for yourself. I'm just saying, but... This is the same as the girl at Panera Bread when the line is long going, let me show you how the kiosk works. It'll save you time. Yeah, honey, you're training your replacement. And that's what's going on right here. These, these, when you're using AI that is this advanced, the only way it gets this advanced is with self-learning algorithms. Every time these computers are doing these functions at these call centers now, like saying, slow down the speed of your discussion, this person has a hard time following your, 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 your speed, or speak a little bit more softly, they think you're upset. Uh, and then, and then they, it analyzes the results. It's learning. And it's not just learning how to do what it's doing better. It's learning how it will be able to do it itself in the future. And, and part of the reason people have resistance to this is when I say the computer's learning, 
People ascribe a human connotation to that, the way that humans learn. Humans and computers learn in some ways drastically differently from each other. And it won't actually be the computer doing the learning that actually applies the learning. That computer does learning, which is then made into additional code and additional algorithms that are applied to new technologies. This is where computers have an advantage over people. So let's, let's look at a situation like I have right now. I have a son. He knows a lot of the things I know, but he doesn't know all of the things that I know. And he never will because he's gone off to do other things on his own and find his own life. And that's how humans work, and that's fine. But imagine if everything I ever learned, whether he just chose to do what I would do with the knowledge or not, all of it went into him. And as I continue to learn, even as he's out doing his own thing, all of my acquired knowledge still gets transferred over to him. And that my grandson, Braylon, would then have the benefit of all the knowledge I have, plus all the knowledge my son has, plus all the knowledge he's gaining by applying that knowledge. Not just the pieces of it, the way humans take it, but the totality of it. That's how software generations work. Version 1, version 2, version 3, version 4. Accumulation. Now, you add learning algorithms to that, and you realize that this the clunkiness that's left in AI, we will hit a point with an exponential leap where it will become so much better overnight, you'll feel like it all happened in a year. But it's really happened over decades. And that's where we're heading. And that's where this type of technology is heading. Where you'll call in and go, you know, you won't wait to talk to an operator. You'll say, hi, I'm Julie with, with Charter Communications. How may I help you today? I'm having a problem with uh, my, my, my internet service. Well, what is it? Is it, is it not working? Is it working? Oh, it just doesn't work at all. Oh, have you tried rebooting your router? Yes, I have. Okay. Well, let's, let's do that again just to be sure. And I'll, I'll check to see if I can see your router reboot. Cause that'll make me reboot it without explaining to them that I understand all of this shit. And I've done this three times before I call them. Cause if they're going to actually do something with the information other than just walk me through it cause they think I'm too stupid to unplug a router, I'll do it. And when the whole thing's over, you'll hang up and you're, you know, oh, we, we, you know, we've determined that there actually is an outage in your area and we have crews working on it now. Would you like to get a phone call? This is an actual conversation I had with a person. It was actually painful with a person. I think a computer program to do it properly and understand that I'm getting pissed off and I'm an educated, I'm an educated customer that knows how to do this shit. And if there's an outage, just get to that and let's not try to fix something you can't fix with a reboot because I'm only calling you to find out if there's an outage. Because if there's an outage, I'm just going to go on about my life. But a person, a person should be able to do that, but a computer would never forget. You can't tell me the customer service work for, for, for charter. Uh, should know that the very first thing to do when they get a customer call says, my internet doesn't work, is to say, well, let's check and see if there's a problem in your area. Oh, yes, there is. Of course it doesn't work because service is down in your area. Done. Why am I rebooting my router with some guy named Tom that, that makes minimum wage or maybe a couple dollars over it, who I know more about computer networking than he will the day he dies, if he takes a computer science class tomorrow? Why? Because he's stuck. He can't, he can't, he can't move to a different flow of thought. He doesn't have the freedom because his emotion won't let him. Believe it or not. If he stays on script, even if he pisses me off, if he just follows number one, number two, number three, number four, he won't get fired. The computer doesn't care if he gets fired. The computer can develop adaptive algorithms that identify situations. The computer can multitask. 
The computer can be walking me through shit while it's checking to see if there's an outage. In any industry, this applies. If you think your job is safe from automation, you may be wrong. Even if your job won't be replaced by automation, it may be disrupted by the number of people who do lose their jobs to automation. This is going to be an interesting future. Keep your eyes on the prize for it. Next up, I have a story about um, barter economy taking over in the Spanish mining uh, country of the, the Asturias, uh, which are mountains, and this is on BBC. So let me just read this article to you. Ave Fernandez's small house is surrounded by edible plants. Among traditional winter crops grown in this area, like versa, a kind of cabbage, there's also mustard, Jerusalem artichokes, and shiitake mushrooms. It's a small patch of bounty amid miles of empty rolling hills. Rather than study engineering to work at the coal mines like both his father and grandfather, Mr. Fernandez studied agriculture in Cuba. I couldn't afford to go paying a university, so I studied for free at ISCA University in San Jose, he beams. Digging through 400 square meters of artichokes he has planted. Ghost towns. Asturias became the center for coal production in Spain in the late 19th century. But waves of closures have left whole towns deserted and hundreds of thousands of miners unemployed. And the EU is sending all subsidies, is ending all subsidies for the coal fields by 2018, sounding the death knell for the industry in the region. Ave Fernandez uses traditional Asturian technique to grow his mushrooms, harvesting branches from the forest, drilling small holes and impregnating them with spores before covering the holes with beeswax and leaving them in the dark for a year. Then he makes shiitake pate, dries and cures the mushrooms, and powders them so they can be taken in pill form. For all his work, he's earned no money until recently. Instead, he puts his produce into an online barter economy, trading it for other things he needs. Up in the mountains, there's a serious liquidity problem, he says. People find it easier to barter because money simply isn't available. Twice a month, he takes his produce to a local village market with a sale already agreed online. Other young people also trying to survive in the mountains come with a wide range of offers from building, teaching and, teaching and manual labor to giving legal advice and translation. Spain is far from the only country where barter is gaining traction at the margins of the economy. Barter is probably the oldest form of commerce involving trade of goods or services with no money involved. And in this area of northern Spain, networks such as Restu have developed to allow users to go online and match offers and needs and digital twist of the ancient tradition. The system adopted by Rastu, which stands for Austrian Network of Barter Communities, equates to one trade point known as a Copen to one euro and enables users to barter directly or rack up digital currency to get goods and services from others in the community. To attract businesses, users can also deal in a mix of euros and points. Barter means you can leave the bureaucracy alone and that people who wouldn't otherwise have access to money have a way of surviving in the countryside, says Sergio Policio Martin, who helped found the initiative, is also the son of a miner. The first stories that appeared about what's happening said we were all hippies. Now they are calling us entrepreneurs. Across the Asturians, there are 78 municipalities divided into nodes, he explains. Each one works autonomously. Since it started four years ago, nearly 1,500 users have shifted about 350,000 euros of produce between them. Returned to the mountains. Until the mid-19th century, most people from the Asturians lived in small holdings similar to that of Ave Fernandez. As a coal and steel mining took hold, rural areas were abandoned and the central cities and industrial centers became overpopulated. But Mr. Fernandez says that all has changed and speaks of a big movement 
People from the Asturians are returning to the mountains. They are having to learn about their rural environment because there's nothing else for them. There is no work. Further up in the mountains, Vieta cuts pumpkins and turnips for stew she's making for her kids. It's not really new, this movement to the countryside, she says. People were already rural, but then they moved to the city. Now a generation's moving back. It's just another episode of Return to the Roots. And there are opportunities here, too. Asturias boasts 200,000 hectares of virgin chestnut forest, Europe's biggest, says Abe. For now, the chestnuts drop to the ground and are eaten by wild boars. The mild climate-rich soil are good for farming. We have all we need here, says Violetta. We came to make a future for ourselves because in the city, the future is dark and there are no possibilities. Here, the possibilities are endless. There's forest, there's water, there's sun. We have what we want. The bartering activity is modest and will not provide a lasting solution to these young people's problems, but it's a start and offers a chance to navigate a period of uncertainty and industrial decline. Well, I, I think what's interesting is how similar this sounds to the northeastern United States, first of all, um, where I grew up, and where the coal industry was in decline long before It was because of subsidies or environmentalism or what have you. It was because the easy coal was mined, and the coal that was still being mined was being mined with more automation, even back in the 80s. Um, and a lot of the, the industry that the coal supported had left, and therefore there wasn't as much value to the coal locally anymore, so less of it was mined. And what I mean by that is, you know, a lot of the coal that was mined in Pennsylvania uh, went to steel mills in Pittsburgh and, and, and in Allentown. And when that, 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 that manufacturing ended up in places like Japan, Japan had better, uh, sources of, of coal or whatever fuel they would use, um, than getting it from Pennsylvania. So even when one industry still had legs, so to say, they got knocked out from under it when a major customer went elsewhere. And, and this, it sounds, without the technology, You know, the whole barter aspect, a lot of it sounds like the way that I grew up, except that because there was so much of like an old country vibe, uh, Ukrainian, Lithuanian, Georgian, Irish, probably the, 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 the four biggest uh, people. And you know what I, what I mean? I say the vibe is people's grandparents had come, were, you know, so your dad was a first generation American. You were a second generation American. Your grandparents actually came here from overseas. And it wasn't like, oh, that's Tommy and Bill that are like that. It was like almost everybody in the area, you know, their grandparents, and at the most their great-grandparents were immigrants. And they had a lot of this kind of community, and a lot of them went through a lot of shit when they first got here to be able to find a place and call their own and form these little towns like Jonestown and Primrose and stuff like that. That It was almost, you wouldn't barter formally. Because it was almost seen as, like, why do you need to get something in return to share something? So, I remember, like I said, I remember being a kid, and we had this huge garden, and there were older people in the community that, that really couldn't produce their own food anymore. And as we had that big surplus at the end, my grandmother would pack bags up and write family names and say, go deliver it. And it wasn't ask them what you can get back, but a lot of times, you know, maybe they couldn't run a full garden anymore, but they still had a patch of rhubarb, but we didn't grow. And I would come back with a big bag full of rhubarb from my grandmother. And, and it was it was exchanged, but it wasn't formally exchanged. But I think as people get more and more into their own worlds, to bring that back, you have to put some level of formality in the value-to-value -value exchange. And the other thing that strikes me about this, this point system sounds an awful lot like Bitcoin. 
in many ways, you know, because it's not, it's not euros, right? It's not dollars. It's, it's, it's a point within the barter system. Uh, and, and it, it has a one to one exchange with the euro, but I think Bitcoin is actually more powerful. But it also makes me wonder, like, is this the blueprint for the future? You notice the way the article ends that the, uh, the, the journalist from the BBC who, uh, who, who just can't fathom this, this, this being a long term solution says, so, you know, it won't work. This, this is no long-term solution, but it might get them through a period of uncertainty. I think that's this journalist reassuring themselves that this isn't the future. I think, by and large, this is the future. And I think it'll scale both globally and locally and, and in between. When we look at, you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, apps like Cell 411, where people can create all these little groups and exchange things locally or, 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 you know, basically replace Uber by just saying, like, I give rides in this area. And, and then the person has reviews and trust. I mean, if you start looking at the average um, suburban neighborhood, if people actually do turn to doing a little farming and homesteading and crafts and stuff like that, there's massive economies all over the place like this. And that doesn't mean that, see, this is the problem that I think people have always had with this concept. There's such a desire to tell the powers that be to F the F off. That whenever somebody starts thinking this way, they always think about it as like an all or nothing ploy. Like, we need to completely, well, you're not. Your neighbor's not going to grow chocolate, and you might want a chocolate bar once in a while. Global trade's a good thing. For all of the problems there are with the systems, there's good in it, too. And if there wasn't, you wouldn't be listening to me on an iPhone or an Android right now or whatever you're doing. You wouldn't be driving in your car that was made in Germany or where, you know, wherever it was made. You, know, you wouldn't be driving your Japanese car that was built in Tennessee provided if, if the global economy gave us nothing good. So what we have to actually start thinking about it isn't how can we replace it, but how can we exist parallel to it, and how can we bring as much local economy to the, 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 the page as possible and not dealing in dollars for that or euros or pounds, depending on where you are in the world, is, is probably the most important piece of it. Because even if it's local, if I need a haircut, and I do right now, and I'll probably go to ProCuts and get my haircut because it's easy and simple and I'll pay dollars. But if the lady down the road was really good at cutting hair and I trusted her to cut my hair, and I go down the road and, and I say, well, how much is a haircut? And she goes, I charge 10 bucks, And I say, okay, here's $10. Or I charge 15 bucks, here's $15. Now it's not even, it's still not truly local. Because I've taken a, a U.S. currency, right, fiat, fiat debt-based currency, really, and I, I probably acquired it from doing something outside of the community. I've paid for something inside the community with it, but she's going to turn around and take her money and go to Walmart and send it outside of our community, and then that will get sent within the Walmart world completely globally across the world to Paraguay where the turnips came from or whatever. But if I go down the road and say, well, you know, what do you want to cut my hair? And she goes, 10 bucks. And I go, what about a dozen and a half duck eggs? Okay. She says, yes. I get my hair cut. The duck eggs came from in our economy. The duck eggs go to her. She eats the duck eggs. Conversely, she doesn't spend currency outside of the local economy. Everything stays within the economy. When she can't get something from the economy, only then does she go outside of it. 
I think that's the bigger lesson from these barter experiments and uh, barter communities as they're beginning to develop. Those are just my thoughts. I'd love to hear yours today in the show notes for episode 1946. The next one's a question I almost didn't take because I don't know that I have any business sticking my nose into this, but I know it's a, a common thing that occurs. So it says, uh, this is from Becca. Becca says, I have a question about dealing with moving to a great homestead from a great homestead to a place closer to the city and a spouse's work. My husband and I moved to the city to, from the city to a wonderful place in the country with 10 acres, woods, and pasture four years ago. We bought it with the intention to stay here and raise our five kids on a small farm. At the time, he was about to get out of the Marines, and we needed a place with low mortgage and living expenses while he looked for a new job. We are located 30 to 40 minutes from three medium-sized cities. Our cost of living is about two-thirds of what it was in the city, so we thought this would be perfect. It has been an amazing place to raise our young kids. I love it here so much, but my husband ended up getting a really good job on the other side of one of the cities, making his commute an hour and a half each way. I asked him about looking for a job closer to home, but he really likes his job. I also, I have also suggested starting a business from home, but he's not really interested in doing that. And even if he could work from home most of the week, he really wants to move back to the city. I know three hours on the road every day is too much, so I'm trying to be willing to move, but it's so hard. The farm homestead has always been my dream. I have worked so hard to make our little farm productive. I'm finally getting to see some of the fruits of my labor. Our plum tree produced some plums for the first time last year, and our soils are finally good enough to produce a thriving garden. I can't seem to stop planting trees, bushes, and vines you talk about on your show, but I'm so discouraged that we would have to move after all of this. In my head, I know there are other places that we can make beautiful, but my heart hurts every time I think of leaving our home. I feel sick at the thought of leaving the city again, living in the city again. I'm sure we can find somewhere on the outskirts of the city that will be fine, but I am still really struggling with this. I know you went through the whole moving back to the city from Arkansas. I'm sure it was hard for you in some ways. I really appreciate your thoughts and advice on dealing with this. Thanks so much, Becca in South Carolina. Well, Becca, um, I'm going to say something initially that might torque your husband off, but I spent a lot of my life driving an hour and a half each way to work every day so that my family could have what they wanted. I'm not saying that's what y'all should do or that he should feel obligated to do it, but it's not a task that's unmanageable. And you have to ask yourself as a family, if you do this and you move and then that job goes away, are you going to do it again and again and again? And are you ever going to say, this is where we make our stand? So now the other side, it wore me out. It wore me out. If it wasn't for this show, I may have blown my top. This show gave me my sanity back. And, and I think people realize, like, okay, well, he worked up there in that Frisco area, and he drove, you know, an hour, hour and a half every day back and forth. And sometimes it was two hours to get home with traffic and all. Um, and, like, but I was kind of, like, I just really started those companies up there and all. I did that for years. And when I wasn't doing it, I was traveling. So it was, it was actually easier to drive an hour and a half in the morning and an evening than to leave on Sunday night and come home Friday evening. Okay. Which I, that's what I did for the rest of my career. Um, so I understand the strain and I get it and I get why you not want to do it. So I have a couple of thoughts. One, here's how we did it when we moved back here. Dorothy wanted to move back here. I said, How close do we have to be to Ground Zero, which was her her, her son, uh, his new girlfriend, and our father-in-law and her sisters. She gave me a radius. I said, okay, here's how this is going to work then. We're not rushing to this. 
we're going to take our time. We're going to find something that works for us. You're mostly concerned with the proximity. I'm mostly concerned with the property itself. So until we find something that works for both of us, we're going to deal with the situation as it is. And if you're going to move, I think that's, that's the approach that he owes it to you to take. If he has to tough it out for another year of this crap, fine. You do. Because you're giving up all of that. And it's very possible that you can find something very similar or at least enough that you don't feel like you're giving everything up. And he still might have to drive 30 or 40 minutes to work. And I, I, I would tell him whether you like what I've said up until now, but if you have to drive 45 minutes to work and 45 minutes home every day and you don't like it, but you can make your family happy, suck it up, buttercup. They should have taught you that in the core, man. I'm serious. Like that's to me. Like people that say I have a really long drive to work. How long is it? 45 minutes. I'll go, go bother. Seriously, if you can have the life you love to live because of that, then 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 that's not a huge sacrifice. You know, listen to a podcast every day. Uh, use the time to educate yourself. Use the time to think about your future. You know, do something with it. It's not time that's just thrown away as long as you make something out of it. But an hour and a half. So it's three hours a day. Yeah, where's you out? I mean, I want you to think about it this way, guys. When you do, when you're doing that, that's 15 hours a week. That's 15 hours a week. But I'm also hearing something else in here. He wants to move back to the city. It almost feels like he wants one thing and you want another, irrespective of work and commutes. Now you're gonna have to find a balance in that as well. Strong families find balances. Neither side gets to dominate. We, we, what do you want? What do I want? We find something that we work together so we can both have what we want. That's That's the power of a strong relationship. That's the best I can do here, man. I am not Dr. Phil in this. I'm really not. But it would seem to me like if you're going to make this step for him, that he should be willing to take the time necessary to find exactly what you want and still realize your commute may not just be like, you know, 10 minutes. Like that, that, that's probably not going to work to get you what you want. But 30 minutes, again, suck it up, buttercup. Sorry, man, really. For your wife, for your kids, yeah, suck it up. Um, and then the other conversation has to be had now. It's like, so what happens if this job goes away? Are we going to do this again? Like, th that's something you, to me you kind of need to like work out because I know what it's like to work really hard and get something to the point where you're really starting to become happy with it, and then having to leave. You know, I do. I absolutely do, and I understand. So. That's all I can do. Uh, this one comes from uh, David. David says, Hi, Jack. I've launched my farm's first event. I mentioned on the show would be awesome. Cider Hollow partnered up with Spiral Ridge Permaculture to offer a fruit, grafting, fruit tree grafting workshop. Students will learn how to various grafting techniques and the reasons behind them. Various species will be covered, as well as how to prune your own trees to set them up for proper structure. Students will even be taking home their own tree. A special bonus? Nicole, awesome sauce. We'll even have some fresh roasted coffee for sampling. For info and to sign up for this event, click the events tab at ciderhollow.com. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, so, David, I'll put a link in the show notes today. And again, the folks, the website is ciderhollow.com. And uh, it, it'll be a really cool event to check out. Now, a little teachable moment before I go on. David, when you send an email like this, you say, my form is in. Well, just outside of Savannah, Tennessee, so that the host of the show that's giving you the show mention can tell people where the hell you are so that people in that area, specifically for a smaller workshop like this, can think, oh, I can go there. 
Always say where you are. Always say where you are. So it's just outside of Savannah, Tennessee. Again, the website is ciderhollow.com, and I'll have a link to the events page for you in the show notes, Grafting Workshop. In fact, I'll link all the way down to the Crafting Workshop specifically so you don't have to find it, and uh, you can find out all about it there. My final segment today, and man, this this reads like a, a movie script or something. And um, This is real-world self-defense, and uh, it, it just makes me think of the people who go, what would you ever need a gun for? Why would you? No one would have. I mean, if you don't go to places where it's dangerous, like, you know, I don't know, Target? Not targets like at the gun, like target store and, and with your kids and your wife. How about that? Listen to this, and this is this was referencing back. So last week I answered a question about carrying a gun, and a guy said at work there were two people that both carry, and they were arguing over safety. And one said you always carry with around in the chamber, and the other one said you don't. It's not safe to. And I said the one that said you don't is an, is I use nicer words, but I'll say it today because this is going to back me up. You're an idiot. You get your ass killed. You always carry. I mean, cocked, lock, and ready to rock. That's, you know, safety on if it's there, protocols in place, etc. But you don't carry a gun with an empty chamber. That's just dumb. Here's why. This comes from KC. KC says, listening to the show about carrying one in the pipe. I just like to share that one time I had to draw my rescue tool, known as a handgun. I had no time to chamber around in the firearm. In a, tar- in, in a target parking lot at nighttime. In a nice area of town where I grew up, around Thanksgiving Christmas time, my forerunner is reversed into the first spot. A guy used his rape van to completely box in my vehicle while I was buckling up my one-year-old daughter in her car seat and while my wife was putting the cart away. Situational awareness told me it was go time. I had barely enough time to slam my daughter's door, jump in the driver's seat while slamming the door with my left hand while unholstering my pocket carry single stack nine with the right hand while hitting the door lock button with the left hand. The guy was almost running to my door in a black hoodie with both hands in a big front pocket. By the time he got to the door, two seconds just, I had locked the door and a fraction of a second before had my pistol over my lap at his chest ready to shoot through the door if I had to. I believe, I believe I didn't have to pull the trigger because I got the drop on him. The look on his face when he saw that pistol pointed at his chest said everything I needed to know. He was about to do something. I probably looked like an easy target because I appeared to be preoccupied and unsuspecting. If I had time, if I had to rack a chamber in my gun, I would have had to make a decision. Do I use my left hand to rack one in the chamber or make the gun ready, or do I use it to lock and close my doors? That could have been a pivotal moment where everything could have been different. I believe that me closing and locking the doors and a split second before he got to the door, uh, got to my door, threw him out of his OODA loop, uh, or his plan. The gun pointed at his chest reaffirmed that he didn't really want to do anything and just wanted to leave. What I learned, the obvious stuff we all know. Bad things happen anywhere. A gun on your body is always a good idea. Always have one in the pipe ready to go because you might not have two hands to manipulate that gun. Statistics show us that most gunfights happen are at night, are within three yards, and take three three shots and are over in three seconds and are done with one hand. The stuff I didn't. What to do after, as soon as he got his rape van and unlocked 
and I unlock the car and let my wife in. Sorry, sorry, sweetheart, but my adrenaline was pumping and the fight was over, so my instincts were was to run. I actually followed him out of the parking lot. If I would have been thinking clearly, I would have got his license plate. Ammo. Before I would have said that six plus one rounds of nine millimeter would have been plenty for any self-defense situation. As soon as I was uh, clearing leather, I was thinking, make sure we keep the gun low so we're shooting through the sheet metal so we don't shatter the barrier between him and I. But shooting a couple of shots out of a three-inch barrel through one or two layers of sheet metal might not have been as effective as as uh, reducing my round count, as I might need to make more effective shots. Uh, lastly, I carry more ammo when I'm with family of three kids under four years old. I realize that if I'm attacked with the family, there is no way I will ever be able to retreat, so I'm going to have to keep the gun in the fight till the situation is over. Kind of long. You can show a summary on the air if you'd like uh, from KC. So, first of all, well done. Well done. Second of all, chasing them, probably not a good idea. Because you've already got somebody you know means violence against you. However, getting the license plate would have been the best use of that effort. Um, but I'll, I'll tell you, if you want an example of why you don't carry with you know an empty chamber, there it is. The other thing that, that really this makes me think of, though, is these people that are so daft, why would anybody ever need a gun? Because of this. Well, you're more likely to shoot yourself. No, you're not. No, you're not. And, and I want you to think about this. What if, what if when that guy got to that window, he didn't even notice the gun and took a tire on and started beating the window or some, used a, a center punch? That's what a lot of these guys do to, to put windows out. They use a, a, a center, an impact center punch. They, and that's probably what he had in his pockets if, he, if he's a pro at doing this. And it sounds like he was. You take that center punch, you push it against the window, and when you push it, it builds up tension, and a spring releases inside, and it takes a window out of a car right out and reaches hands in there. Grab that guy. Guy has his kids in the car. What if he had no gun? What if he had no gun? How might that story have ended? I want you to think about that. All these people say you don't need a gun. Well, you don't need a lot of things. You know? You probably don't need the TV that you have, but you have a right to your property. You probably don't need the level of car that you have, but you have a right to your property. I mean, first of all, the whole concept of need is irrelevant. Most people have tons of shit they don't need, but we recognize in a free society they have a right to their property. Second of all, 99.9999% of the time, in the life of a person who will eventually need a gun, they won't need a gun. You don't carry it for that 99.9999% of the time. You carry it for that .0001% of the time. Because when you need it, you really need it. It's a stupid question. Why would anybody ever need a gun? There's, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of examples just like this. And, and these are the ones that they don't get any coverage in the media. Do you know why? Because the gun never went bang. The presence of the weapon was sufficient to defuse the situation. And you almost never hear about that. And probably 9 out of 10 encounters like this end without the gun being fired. 
And people say, well, how does that square against never draw a weapon unless you're ready to use it? Well, I'm ready to use it right up until the point where this threat turns ass and runs the other way. Because trust me, in that situation, when that guy comes up to that window and that gun gets leveled at him, he looks like he's pulling something out of his pockets, he starts hitting the window, I'm not worried about the barrier. He's getting one in the freaking bean. Or two, or three, or whatever it takes to make him stop doing what he's doing that makes me feel afraid. He's getting shot. But if, if, if the appearance of the gun causes a retreat, great, I don't have to take a human life today. That's just wonderful. I don't have to sit here and explain to cops why I was defending myself and worry about maybe the fact that they're going to take me to the jail even though I was a victim. I, I want all of those things. I want all of those things. But should it need to be fired, I want to be able to do it. The next time you hear somebody say, what would you ever need a gun for? Just realize how stupid a statement that is. It's a dumb statement. It's either made in complete ignorance, and sometimes it is, but more often it's made with disdain for people that would see to their own protection. Because it makes people that won't feel uncomfortable in their decision not to be responsible for their own protection. Just my thoughts. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I did have a lot of variety. I like to try to bring you as much variety in these shows as possible, these feedback shows. Again, remember, just email me, jackofthesurvivalpodcast.com with TSPC in the subject line if you want to submit content for a show like today. I love hearing your stories and answering your questions and doing all I can to help you. If you want to help me help you in another way by supporting us financially, there's a way you can do that, but it doesn't cost you any money. Well, it's not any money we're going to spend anyway. And that's just simply when you do your Amazon shopping. When you're going to go to Amazon.com and buy something next time, just go to tspaz.com first. T-S-P-A-Z. T-S-P for The Survival Podcast. A-Z for Amazon.com. T-Spaz. Really easy to remember. You go there. There's a link. You click that link. You go to Amazon. You buy your stuff. We get credit for your, for your order. It doesn't cost you any more money. You get your stuff just as fast. It's the same old Amazon you always use. You just went through our affiliate link. And we really appreciate it when you do that because it supports us in such a great way. I also review uh, products every every day, most days anyway. Today I have one for you for fishermen. It's called the Zijin Telescopic Fishing Pole. As it, you might imagine, it's made in China. But it's the best telescopic fishing pole that I've found, period. It's a really badass little fishing pole. I have one that extended is uh, 4.9 feet, so it's almost 5 feet. But telescope down, it's only a foot, 12 inches long. Stiff, good backbone, high-quality real seat in it, nice eyes on it. Yeah, eyes, that's what fishing poles have. And it's it's a great pole. If, it, if there's any problem with it, it's it's pretty stiff for a small kind of ultralight-level rod. Pretty stiff backbone in it, not as hypersensitive as something else would be. But most of the telescopic rods I've found have kind of junk. And I'd rather have too much backbone than too little in, in a fishing rod, especially a telescopic rod. The, the reason I like rods that are telescopic or multi-piece or whatever is you can take them with when you travel. You can put them in a backpack. You can put them in a, a kit. And you can actually fish. Because hand lines and stuff are fine, but it's, it's not the same as having a rod where you can actually cast and, and, and do things like that. This works really good for that. Also, like I put out a video recently of this park that I found a little place to fish in. And it's not a place where people fish. It's a creek on the park boundary. And you're walking past soccer moms and little kids and stuff like that. And I just prefer, if I was going back there, to just not attract attention to what I was doing. I don't want to be asked about it. I don't want ten kids following me. You know, I, I just want to go off and, and do my thing. Um, throw it behind a truck seat, what have you, and you've, you know, oh, there's a pond. 
I'll grab my gear and, and go see if there's any fish in there. It just helps with targets of opportunity. And if for a survival fishing kit, this thing is the bomb. It really is. There may be better ones. I haven't found any yet. I have some recommendations on fishing reels and stuff like that in the article that's up there today. I have a video in the article, too, where you can actually see me uh, you know, uh, deploy the rod, put a little reel on it, talk a little bit about it, show you kind of the backbone on it. But it is a, it is a badass little rod. How much? $20. Bucks. And they make bigger ones, too. They make like a 7-foot, 6-inch one when extended. It's about 14 taken down. It would make a nice medium-class, you know, your, your channel catfish and stuff like that. I think it would be fine for. I wanted really lightweight for the back creeks, but check it out. Again, it's called the Z-Gin. It's, it's Z-H-I-J-I-N. And, yeah, it's out of China. And the day America makes something like this, I'll buy it. That's all I can say. For those of you like, you should buy America first. Well, they're not making these things like this in America. Um, this is not a high-end tool, though. It's it's very good for what it is. Uh, for travel, I use a Browning four-piece uh, medium-light-fast-action rod that's like an $80 rod. And it, this thing's nowhere near the quality of that Browning rod. But it fits in a one-foot... I mean, to give you an idea how compact this thing is, uh, you know, Amazon ships on Sundays now a lot of times, even when you don't ask them to. You get your shipping notice. So I'm I'm getting ready for the non-event of the Super Bowl as I thought it was going to be yesterday. Talk about that in a second. And uh, I get a notice that your you know your package has arrived. So I go out. I'm looking for it laying up against the fence or just inside the fence or whatever. I'm all like a flashlight all over the ground. I can't find it. I wonder if it's in the mailbox. It was in the mailbox. Like our standard regular mailbox. It fit in there. Fishing pole fits in a mailbox. Check it out. The Zijin Telescopic Fishing Pole. And remember, do your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com. Brings us to our song of the day. As, as, as I've been doing, I'm going to keep going for a while, at least anyway, doing the number one song of the year. Uh, today's song is by a guy named Perry Como. Many of you have probably heard the name Perry Como. Very, very famous at one time. And the song is called Prisoner of Love. And I can't say this is a song that I've always liked or really listened to. I had heard it before when I realized what it was and looked it up today. Um, but I decided to take a look at the lyrics and, and basically understand. And it it is what it says it is, as things were of the time. It's about a man who's who's lost the woman he loves, but he's still a prisoner to her love. And there is a lesson in that. Because a lot of people are prisoners to past relationships, and they're not always romantic. Sometimes they're familial. Sometimes they're good friends that are lost, what have you. And this is the truth. As hard as it is to let go sometimes from toxic relationships, if you're letting them stay entwined in your life and you're letting them continue to control you, then you are a prisoner to those things. Whether it's a, a friend or a family member that you're very angry with, uh, whether it's a past romance, as in this, is this song, where they've moved on and you haven't, Again, this all comes back to the dash, right? The hyphen that is you. You are a hyphen. If you've never heard this before, the way I mean that is when you're dead, they'll bury you. They'll put a stone over your head. or they'll Maybe they'll put a little plaque or maybe you get cremated and they throw you out in the ocean. But in a, a newspaper somewhere or online, they'll put an obituary and it'll say, born this date, died this date, and there'll be a dash in the middle. That dash is you. It's too important to spend your dash attached to things that have moved on without you, or have done brought you nothing but harm. We need to fill our lives with good things and good people and good goals. And we can't do that if we live in the past and we let the past control us. Just a few thoughts to get your week started today. 
With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Just a prisoner of love.